You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Jewish Matters Podcast. And we are starting a new series, Exodus Unveiled, as we begin the new book in the Torah and this week's Torah reading, the Parsha. And the book of Exodus is the next stage of the evolution of the Jewish people. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that the book of Genesis is really about a family. It's really about the tribe of the Jewish people and the unfolding of the values within that family. Exodus will go to the next stage, which is the evolution of a people, the Jewish people becoming uh, a nation and different issues, issues of leadership, issues of uh, the peoplehood itself and how it's defined and what their mission is. And Rabbi Sachs also points out that the story of Exodus is a story of redemption, building on Nachmanides, who calls it the book of redemption, the saving of the Jewish people from slavery. Rabbi Sachs points out that this is, in human history, the beginning of the drama that brings out the point that a human being has rights, that it's not the rule of power, but it's the rule of justice, and that a slave people can be redeemed, can claim their own freedom. And of course, that freedom will be another major theme of the book of Exodus, the giving of the Torah that the freedom is not freedom for freedom's sake, but the freedom to actualize the mission of the Jewish people. This book will also explore Moshe's leadership and the theme of leadership. And of, of course, leadership has followers and what it means to be part of the people following Moshe's leadership as well. So let's jump into the story. The book in Hebrew is called Sefer Shemot and the Parsha is Shemot, which means names. And the book reiterates the names of the tribes at the beginning. Why does it do that when it just had them in the end of Genesis? So the people are going to grow, but they're going to retain their tribal identity, which Jacob already in his blessing showed was uh, unique, each tribe having its own qualities. So the Jewish people are increased, They flourished, but then a new king came that did not know Joseph. And so often in Jewish Jewish history, this has been our story, that things are going well, the regime changes, and then everything changes for us. And the classical anti-Semitic tropes are invoked. Uh, The king says they're becoming too many, and if we are invaded, they will turn on us a fifth column within us. They're not really loyal to us. And so they made them work. They appointed taskmasters. And no, the Jewish people did not build the pyramids. Uh, in the background here, you see the picture of the, uh, of the workers in Egypt. And uh, the pyramids were about a thousand years before the Jewish people. And the Torah, in fact, tells us that they built Pitom and Ramses, these storage cities. And it says, uh, the more they oppressed them, the more they increased. And ironically, even the, the Egyptians were trying to suppress them. And they increased the servitude, embittered their lives with hard work. And then comes the decree, the next step. And we see, unfortunately, the model for Jewish history that the Egyptians didn't just go to throwing Jewish boys into the river. 
It was a gradual step-by-step process. And as we know in more recent history, uh, Hitler, may his name be erased, also did not start with a final solution. It starts slowly, builds up, and gets worse. And that's what the Egyptians did. But when they were, to, when the midwives were told to throw the Jewish boys into the, to kill the Jewish boys at first, it says they feared God and they did not listen to Paro. And this is uh, recognizing the power of civil disobedience, the moral dilemma. If I'm given a command or a rule or a law that I find immoral, how do I react to it? And when he questioned them, why didn't you do what I asked, what I told you? Uh, they used his own, uh, his own thoughts on him. They said, well, they're like animals. They pop out and we can barely get to them. And it says that God rewarded them. And it says he gave, made houses for Shifra and Pua for the midwives. Uh, and what are the houses? The Balaturim says that they were rewarded with what they uh, what what they saved. They were rewarded with children and with offspring because they saved the Jewish people's offspring. There are different opinions uh, whether Shifra and Pua were Jewish or were they non-Jewish midwives. It's not clear from the text, but they are two great heroines. So Pharaoh ups the ante, and this is where he gives the commandment to throw the Jewish boys into the brook. So now we have the next uh, narrative which is the birth story of Moshe. And it says a man from the, went, of the house of Levi went out and took a woman from the house of Levi. And they had this child. Why doesn't it tell us their names? So the commentaries have different reasons. The most basic would seem to be that it's showing us that Moshe was who he was, not because he was from a prominent family. It could have been any person, uh, although the Levites already were leaders and teachers. So... Uh, it does recognize that he was part of, of, that, um, of that tribe. Now, it says that when she, she gave birth, and it, this was uh, um, Miriam, uh, sorry, uh, Yocheved, his mother, when she gives birth, uh, and his father is Amram, when Yocheved gives birth, she sees that the boy is good, and she hit him three months. What does that mean? What does it mean, a good child? So the pshat, the simple understanding is he was good. He didn't cry so much, and that's why she was able to hide him. But the Midrash goes one step further and tells us that the divine presence, the godly light, shone off Moshe's face from when he was born. And what does that mean? So this is the question. Was there something special about Moshe to begin with? And there are debates about this. There's another Midrash, which is a more obscure Midrash, which says that a uh, face reader said that this boy or this man was destined to be a thief, but he turned himself around. So the, you have both narratives in the rabbis, but the most prominent one does seem to say that Moshe had a special divine aura already, even from birth. The other Midrash said he was good. He was born un, already circumcised, which about one in every 30,000 male babies are. But this also would be a sign that something special was in this boy. Now, she could no longer hide him. And seemingly because he got too old and would be heard. And so 
she puts him in a basket and puts him into the river. Miriam follows, uh, is watching over him. And by the way, the role of Miriam, his older sister, will figure prominently throughout the Torah. Even as a young child, it's said that uh, another narrative of why the man went out from Levi and took a woman is that the couples had separated. Once they started killing Jewish boys, they said, we should not have children in these circumstances. And she said to them, Paro's killing the boys and you're also going to kill the girls. And so they remarried. And that's what the man from Levi and the woman from Levi, uh, him taking her, they, they remarried and started having children again. So now Miriam is a heroine watching over Moshe and the daughter of Paro goes out to the river and she sees the basket. She opens it up. She sees this boy crying and says she had mercy on him, but she knew this was a Hebrew child. Miriam, who's been watching, steps in. Would you like to find me to find a midwife? And sure enough, she brings her mother. But it says when Moshe got older, he was brought up by Bitya, or Batya, or Bitya, as it's found in the Torah, in the Tanakh, and he is brought up in the court of Paro. But it does appear that he did have an awareness of his identity. Uh, was it from Yocheved nursing him till a certain age? Was it that uh, his adopted mother uh, let him know where he was from? But at a certain age, seemingly in late adolescence, he goes out to see his people. And so he's having an awakening of identity. And in Steven Spielberg's Prince of Egypt, this is developed extensively, this theme of Moshe being brought up in Pharaoh's court, um, not based on Midrash, but an interesting uh, narrative of it. Remember, the Torah is not a history book. It doesn't give us all the pieces and so some of them are not filled in. Uh, the Midrash fills some of them in. The rest of them, what is the role, our role? Um, we can speculate, but it really is just speculation. But what we do know is that he had this awareness and he went out to see his people. He sought it out. And then he's given a test. And the test is that he sees an Egyptian smiting a Jew Seemingly, he's going to kill him. And what does he do? He has a life-changing decision to make. Does he accept the oppression of his people, keep his privileged status in Pharaoh's court? And he decides, no, this isn't just. And he kills the Egyptian and hides him uh, and makes his life decision, which will have broad implications. Because the next scene is that there are two Jews fighting. And he intervenes there as well, not fighting to death. And they turn on him and say, you're going to kill us too? Who are you to judge us? And he realized that people knew about him killing the Egyptian, and he had to flee. And so he flees to Midian, which is northern Sinai Desert, northern Saudi Arabia, somewhere in that area, south of Israel, north of Egypt. And he flees there and he comes to a well. And at the well, he sees shepherd girls trying to bring their flocks, being taunted by the shepherds. He stands up for them, gives them water and uh, feeds their animals. And the daughters go home and they tell their father, Ru'el, 
uh, what happened, that an Egyptian man, interesting, that externally, at least he looked Egyptian still. An Egyptian man helped us. He saved us. And he says, Oi, where is he? Why didn't you bring him home? He's got seven daughters, remember. So they bring him home. They sit down for bread. And sure enough, the next thing the Torah says is he's married to Tzipporah. Now, what's so important and interesting about these three incidents that we are introduced to Moshe through, that the three things we see of him before he's going to be uh, given his task at the burning bush by God, the three things we see are these three incidents, which are that he intervenes. Now, there's a progression. The first one, an Egyptian hitting, hitting a Jew, clearly unjust, clearly oppressive, standing up for uh, the weak. The two Jews fighting, he could have easily said, you know what, they have their own dispute, they have their own internal dispute, not my business. But he does intervene. And then the final uh, scene, you're fleeing for your life. You're a wanted man. The last thing you need to do is create waves. Yet even here, he sees the injustice and he intervenes. And so the ethical teachers tell us that what is the quality of Moshe? Not great prophecy, not spiritual attainment, but that he takes responsibility and he stands up for injustice and he's willing to put his neck on the line. These are the qualities of the great leadership of Moshe that we are introduced to. Now, It says that Moshe was shepherding his sheep at the mountain of God, at the Mount of Horev, which is another name for Mount Sinai. When is this? It's not clear, but uh, soon after, when Moshe takes the Jewish people out, he's 80 years old. When he fled, it appears he might have been in his late adolescence, early 20s. So what happened in the intervening 60 years? The Torah does not tell us. Did Moshe become a great spiritual uh, personality that he should become the greatest prophet? It doesn't tell us. There are Midrashim that say that Moshe had other adventures going into Africa, becoming the head of a country, having experience in leadership and war. Could be. But the Torah doesn't want us to know. It doesn't tell us because when Moshe is confronted at the burning bush, It says that he is at this mountain of God and um, he was shepherding his sheep and a fire appears within the bush and he looked and he saw the bush was burning that the fire was not consumed. And at first he's afraid. And then God calls out to him, Moshe, and he says, here I am, like the, the other patriarchs did. I'm ready to do your service. So he was more shocked by the bush than by God speaking to him. What is the meaning of the bush? Seemingly the bush is a metaphor for the Jewish people, that they were burning, they were in pain, they were suffering, but they were not consumed. They were still strong. They were still surviving. And then God tells him, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. So he's clearly having this uh, God experience And God introduces himself. I'm the God of your forefathers. I've heard the cries of suffering of the Jewish people. And I will come and I will save them. And I will bring them up to this land 
the land flowing of milk and honey, and our first introduction to uh, the special qualities of the land of Israel. And he tells Moshe, now you are going into Pharaoh and, uh, and you'll bring out the Jewish people. And he says, uh, who am I to do this task? God said, I will be with you and I will bring them out. And then Moshe asks lots of questions. Well, if they ask me who you are, what should I say? And God says to him, tell them, asher or asher I will be which I will be, and I will be as the one who sent you. Very strange passage. The first time God identifies himself, besides saying the God of patriarchs, and it's some form of the verb to be. In other words, God is saying, I am existence. I am being. And he's also saying, I'm the one that which will be. I'm the one who determines who the fate of the world. And so, and then he says, and tell them also that the God of your forefathers sent me. He says, go to the elders, get them involved, and then you will go to Paro and tell him that the God of your ancestors sent you. And then he warns him. He says, the king of Egypt will not let you go. And, uh, but then I will smite them and I will bring uh, these, what we will see are the plagues upon them and you'll leave in great wealth. And Moshe says again, but what if they don't believe me? So here, uh, God uh, gives him three signs. The three signs are the staff, which turns into a snake. Moshe grabs its tail and it turns back into a staff. The staff represents the strength of Moshe's mission from God. And then he puts his hand within his coat. It turns white, which is sarat, which is the affliction for those who speak bad about others. And the rabbis say, because he doubted the Jewish people would believe him, God is giving him that sign. And if you don't believe all these, then pour water on the ground and it will turn to blood, which is a foreshadowing of the plague of blood. So Moshe still resists. So we have Moshe first saying, why are you sending me? And then you have him saying, what if they don't believe me? And then you have him saying, I am not a man of words. I am kaved peh, heavy of mouth. What does that mean? It might mean that he had a lisp according to some. It might just mean that he's not very eloquent. And he says, um, who do you think makes you speak? And he says, God then got angry. And he still says, no, send someone else. And God gets angry and says, I will send Aaron with you. He will be your spokesman, but you will tell him what to say. So finally, it seems that Moshe relented after four or five times trying to wiggle out of it. So Here's where we see that Moshe did not see himself being groomed for this role. But he takes his staff, which means he took God's mission and he returns to Midian. He tells his father-in-law, I'm going back into Egypt. He takes his wife and his children and the staff. And God says, 
you will see the wonders that I'm going to do, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and you'll go tell him now, this is my Jewish people, my firstborn, and tell him to send out my people so that they should serve me, and if not, I will kill your firstborn. So even though it's going to be a long ordeal, Moshe has already told what the end game will be. Why you need to go through the long ordeal, we'll discuss in the coming weeks. Then, as they're going to Egypt, a very strange incident happened. It's called, it's the incident of the Brit. It says they're going along the way, and God sought to kill him. Kill whom? Seemingly Moshe. So Tsipara, his wife, took the foreskin of her son, and he cut the foreskin, and he said, you are a groom of blood for circumcision. Very strange statement. Uh, and somehow the rabbis say that Moshe did not circumcise his son right away because they were traveling, but then they got to an inn and he should have done it then. Um, but it appears that because of this, uh, or whether it was as, as a aftermath of this, when we when Moshe goes into Egypt, his family is no longer with him. And later, they will rejoin him. And by the way, uh, when he names his first son, Gershon, he says, uh, Ger is a sojourner, a foreigner, he says, because I am a foreigner in a strange, stranger in a strange land. And uh, he didn't totally identify as being Midianite. But then what did he identify as? Was he a Hebrew? But he didn't look like a Hebrew. So we see his complicated and mixed identity. His father-in-law, who will be Yitro, although we have here the names Ruel and Chovev, his many names, as Moshe did. So his father-in-law, it says, was Kohen Midian. He was the priest of Midian. And what we know about him is he was a, a spiritual personality and a truth seeker. And next, in the following parsha, the following weeks, we will also have uh, him being a prominent personality. So Moshe goes into Egypt, and God says, I'm sending Aaron. Aaron goes out to greet him. He, Moshe fills him in on their mission. Aaron and Moshe go to the elders and tell them about the mission. Now, seemingly we could presume that the Jewish people had the tradition told to Yaakov and Yaakov to Yosef that God would bring them out of this land and back to the land of Canaan. And so it says when they first came to him, they said, who is this God? And um, uh, Pharaoh questions him, who is this God? But the Jewish people seem to have at first believed him. When they get to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is this God? I don't know him. And I'm not going to send out the Jewish people. And not only that, but uh, very clearly they're not working hard enough. And he makes a new decree that they should produce the same amount of bricks, but he's not going to give them any straw. They have to collect the straw. And this obviously was uh, impossible. The Jewish foremen were beaten. They go to Pharaoh. They say, this is impossible. And he says, you want to go serve your God. Uh, this Moshe has come and said, this is what you want to do. You're lazy and I'll show you what it means to work. Now, here's another fascinating question. 
when Moshe reappears after 60 years, was there still uh, a memory in Egypt of who Moshe was? The Hebrew boy brought up in the house of Paro. And once again, the Prince of Egypt, uh, the movie explores all of this. It even hypothesizes that this Paro might've been the son of the Paro uh, that was there at the time. So Moshe might've grown up with him. He might've been Moshe's peer. But we don't see a direct personal relationship developing between Paro and Moshe in the story in the Torah itself. So upon this happening to Moshe, uh, to the Jewish people, that things just got worse. Um, the people say to him, God appeared to you and now you have ruined things for us with Paro and you have given him a sword in his hand to hurt us even more. You said you're coming to help us. It's just gotten worse. So Moshe then turns to God and says, God, why have you made things worse for your people? And why did you send me? Moshe is not afraid to confront the Almighty. And God just says to him, see what I have in store for Paro. And he will send you out. God reaffirms his promise to Moshe. And that's we will pick up next week. Shabbat Shalom. Have a good evening.